Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello again, my dear friend, and welcome to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast, this monthly odyssey into all things streaming movies television music we get to it all here on the program i am clint davis formerly the movies and tv editor at OverdueReview.com until hackers took us uh, off the web and I, i'm still trying to figure out what to what to do where to go from here with that because you know i do want to get back to writing online about uh about movies about television but um just i don't really have the extra money for it right now and i don't know so i'm trying to figure out a, a way i can do it that'll be a little bit more cost effective and um but but still you know turn out great content for you guys so uh a little bit later on we'll be hearing from my co-host my good friend andy sedlak formerly the music editor at overdue review and uh he'll be telling you about uh, what's going on in music he'll be talking about an artist that is near and dear to both of our hearts well used to be at least i don't know if you can still count him as that but We'll get to that in just a little bit. Like I said, though, I'm Clint Davis. I record uh, my parts in my closet here in beautiful Cincinnati, Ohio. And today, you know, here it is. It's like the middle of June, early June, I should say. Um, it's hotter than shit. It's very humid outside. feels like I live in Florida right now. It's hot in this closet. There's no ventilation in here whatsoever. But, except for like a little hole under the door. I do it for you though, because you know I you just this is where I can get the best sound for you, my friend. But I make matters even worse by lighting up a stogie as I sit in my closet. I'm in my underwear, by the way, today recording the program, so you can picture that if you want to. Uh, but let me go ahead and get my uh, get my stick lit up and and get this going. Ah, just adds just adds a little flavor, a little smoky flavor to the program for you. All right, I have to make a big announcement here as I start the program this month, and that is that for the first time in my life, going back to, uh, I think, you know, since I was a child to definitely since I've been an adult, I do not have cable or satellite television anymore. I don't have it. I'm officially a cable cutter. And if you know anything about me, if you've listened to this show before, you know that I'm a TV lover first and foremost. Well, I'm a movie lover first and foremost, but TV is very close. And TV's been near and dear to my heart for a long, long time, ever since I was growing up. I grew up with television. I can still you still tell you right now the call letters and the times of day that every episode of The uh, Simpsons aired in reruns when I was a kid growing up watching the show. 
uh, three different times a day. I mean, I've always been a nerd for this kind of stuff, memorizing, you know, channels and knowing networks. And I was a kid. I always knew all that stuff. I knew what network every show was on. I knew what night it was on. I was just like a walking TV guide. And I kind of still am the same way. But I cut cable. Beth and I got rid of cable. We decided to just turn it off because there's so many options now for streaming TV that are just as good. And we hardly ever watch anything live. I mean, sports really is it. But almost every, you know, that was what everyone always said. It was like, well, ESPN is going to be the thing that keeps cable around. But now ESPN is offered through all these streaming services. And ESPN has its own streaming service where you don't need, you really don't need it anymore. You don't need to pay for all those channels that you'll never, ever watch and that you have to scroll through endlessly. So we cut uh, Spectrum off. That was who we were we were getting cable through. And we went with, uh, after looking at all the options, we decided to go with DirecTV now which is not direct it's not direct tv in the old sense where you have to have a satellite you know dish installed on the side of your house it's just an online service that's through direct tv so you get like all the channels that direct tv only has you get like audience and access and all that kind of stuff um and then you know a, a different set of channels depending on what you want to subscribe to what your plan is going to be so uh, we just, after looking at everything and thinking about what we watched live, that's the one we went with. And DirecTV had this great offer where they'd send you a, a free Apple TV um, if you signed up and you paid for three months ahead of time. So, and, and those three months, you know, combined were about what we were paying every month for Spectrum. So it worked out really well. And I'm loving this Apple TV. And we upstairs, we have a Fire Stick, and we're watching the DirecTV Now stuff through that. So I'm going to give you a, a report back here in the, in the coming months as to whether or not I miss Having cable at all, uh, the only thing that I'm missing so far, I don't like the fact that DirecTV now, our, our package does not have PBS on it, so I have to use the old-fashioned antenna if I want to watch live PBS, um, which you know is one of my favorite channels, one of those channels I couldn't live without. And also, uh, there's no local Fox Sports affiliate on the package that we have. So that's kind of a bummer because we like to watch the Reds a lot in the summer, but the, the Reds suck ass anyway right now, so it's not we're not missing very much at all. So just wanted to let you know that I'm officially a cable cutter. I thought I'd be the last person that would ever do it. Maybe I was the last person that ever uh, did it, but hey, if I can cut cable, then trust me, you can too, my friend. If you've been paralyzed by fear, you can do it yourself, and you you might just enjoy it. I don't know, but I'll give you I'll give you an update on how that's going in the coming weeks. All right, let's start the program as we always do with my look back in the history of TV show theme songs and my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. For our 29th entry into the canon of great television theme songs, we're going back to the 1980s. And I got to tell you, it does not get a whole lot cooler than this pick. That's right. It's the theme from Knight Rider, which ran on NBC from 1982 to 1986 for four seasons and 90 episodes. Viewers who tuned into NBC's stylish Knight Rider were treated to one of the great openings in history. It's the kind of opening song that immediately just grips you, makes you want to crank the volume up and possibly throw down a sheet of cardboard and breakdance in the middle of your living room floor. (music) 
this song just has so much style, man. So so much authority that you can't help but want to watch when you hear it come on. Combine that with the visuals of this jet black Trans Am peeling out in the desert, and the whole thing is just too damn slick, man. <laughs> And you know, previously on the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, I've uh, I've put the Miami Vice theme into the canon, and I would compare the Knight Rider and Miami Vice themes as like I would say those are probably the quintessential 1980s sound television, you know, stylish TV show theme songs. I would put those two like right together. But there's one thing that the Knight Rider theme song has on the Miami Vice theme that gives it a little bit of a leg up, and that is. It has a spoken word intro, and you know if there's one thing I'm a sucker for, it's a good spoken word section over a TV theme song. A shadowy flight into the dangerous world of a man who does not exist. I actually prefer the spoken word intro as far as like explaining the premise of the television show to new viewers over the lyrics explaining the premise of the show to new viewers. You know, I mean, you, you think about, like, the classic example of the lyrics doing it, and The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is probably it. It lays out the whole show, if you've never seen it before, and you're tuning in in season four randomly. Hey, watch the intro, and you'll pretty much get the gist of what's going on here. You know, it's a little bit hammy, right? But the spoken word intro, not cheesy, awesome, authoritative, and it does the same job as putting it in the lyrics. Michael Knight. Young loner on a crusade to champion the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, in a world of criminals who operate above the law. So, as the intro says, this show is about this L.A. cop, played by David Hasselhoff, who was shot in the face and nearly killed. And then he gets taken in by this billionaire who gives him a new face, gives him a new identity, and sets him up with a high-tech car that has artificial intelligence and a bunch of combat capabilities built into it. All right, this was 1982. This is pretty sweet shit. Michael Knight and his car, which was called Kit, who was voiced by the legendary William Daniels. You'll remember William Daniels from St. Elsewhere and, of course, from Boy Meets World where he played Mr. Feeney. The two of them fought crime as vigilantes. So who created the theme song? The theme song was actually written by Stu Phillips, and Glenn Larson. And Glenn Larson was the guy who created Knight Rider himself. And composer Stu Phillips often worked with Larson. Larson created a bunch of TV shows over the years. You can look him up on Wikipedia, and you'll see just how how much of an impact he had on television in the 70s and 80s. But Phillips also composed the theme to Battlestar Galactica, and he wrote music for The Monkees, The Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew Mysteries, and a bunch of movies that you've probably never heard of. I think without question, for Stu Phillips, the Knight Rider theme is the guy's high watermark. Like many of the great stylish action shows of the day, Knight Rider was eventually not renewed by NBC after four seasons due to high costs and slipping ratings. It just, you know, it's what happens when you got a slick show like this, man. It's it, it looks like a million bucks. It costs a million bucks, and if not that many people are watching it, then you got to say got to say so long, I guess. But its theme song lives on today, as I'll show you in one moment, but right now 
I got to cap it off by saying the Knight Rider theme from NBC, written by Stu Phillips and Glenn Larson. That's my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. I told you this theme song still lives on. Now, doesn't when you hear that song, doesn't it just kind of sound like it was written to be rapped over? Like, doesn't it just sound like a hip-hop beat? Well, it was actually sampled pretty much verbatim in 1998 by Busta Rhymes with his Turn It Up remix. And that is actually where I heard the Knight Rider theme song for the first time. I didn't even know what it was. I just thought, man, this is kick-ass. I didn't know it. And you know what? I've never seen an episode of Knight Rider. Never have watched it in my life, but man... I know that theme song, love that theme song, and I think it's a show that I would probably dig, man. Maybe I should uh, I should seek it out at some point and and give it a watch, but I uh, I do uh, I'm a huge fan of that opening. So that's my pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. If you have any thoughts on those, uh you can always write me in at theclintdavis@gmail.com. At you can give me submissions if there are some shows that you think deserve, you know, my pick, especially if it's like a show that's been out in the last I don't know, 10 years or so, there's a lot of shows that I've missed that I didn't see, you know, that were on cable or whatever, and I just didn't get into them for whatever reason, and maybe they had a great theme song, and I missed it. So if you have uh, any picks for some songs that you think, you know, or go back to your childhood or whatever, ones that you remember as being great TV theme songs, send them to me, theclintdavis at gmail.com, maybe I will put them in a uh, in, in our, our great segment that opens every episode of the Stream Police podcast. Okay, before we uh, move on uh, into uh, talking about some more stuff on TV, I do want to mention that uh, Anthony Bourdain, here in the last couple of days before I'm recording this, it was uh, announced that he had been found dead in his hotel room in France, and he, it turned out he had killed himself. And I just wanted to bring that up because this is a show primarily focused on entertainment and on television. And Anthony Bourdain was about as natural a TV personality that I have ever seen. And you know what? I wasn't the biggest viewer of No Reservations, and I wasn't the biggest viewer of Parts Unknown. I, I didn't watch those shows. I probably saw, I don't know, I've probably seen like three episodes of both those shows combined. But you could just tell how natural the guy was. And I'd see him in interviews a lot, and you know, I read some of the stuff that he wrote, and he was just one of those guys that I, I feel like everyone envied. Right? I mean, I know when I would watch him out on assignment, I'd think, man, this is like, he's got the dream job. You know, he goes around, he explores different countries, like off way off the beaten path. He eats great food. He gets to talk to cool people. I mean, he got to have a chat with, you know, President Obama. Just, he's, a, he's just a cool guy, right? I mean, everybody kind of liked Anthony Bourdain. Everybody thought he was a guy that you'd want to hang out with. Even he kind of seemed like a little bit of an asshole which I heard a couple people say, like, he didn't necessarily seem like a nice guy, per se, but he seemed like a guy you'd want to hang out with, right? And a guy who knew what he was talking about. I saw a tweet that I wanted to bring up here that said that Anthony Bourdain's shows were basically the only ones on television that showed Americans that they should not be afraid of people who live in other countries. I want you to think about that for just a minute. Can you think of another show that eases American fears of outsiders and encourages exploration beyond like the typical tourist areas 
of some of these countries. The first guy that might come to your mind is maybe Rick Steves from PBS. But Rick Steves only takes you pretty much to white Europe. I mean, his whole thing is Europe. He doesn't go outside of Europe. And it's mostly, you know, white Europe are the places that he's going. So it's not nothing too dangerous. Nothing too crazy. He might show you like a chocolate factory in Sweden that you hadn't heard of before or something. But nothing like quite as adventurous as what Bourdain was getting into. The news certainly does not ease your fears about people that are not American. Dramas like NCIS, Criminal Minds, those those shows definitely don't ease your fears about people who aren't from America. Fresh off the boat, maybe. But on that show, you know, they're immigrants trying to assimilate into America. So it's not really about them being in their element. It's not about embracing. uh, It's not about overcoming fear of other people. It's kind of about these people learning how to be Americans, really. So that's kind of a different thing. I think that that's what's going to be Anthony Bourdain's legacy on television. It's not going to be like, well, he was a chef and he made great meals like so many people who are TV chefs are. You know, you think of him more as like a cultural icon, like a guy who really taught you about other cultures, taught you about other countries, way more than just food, way more than just, hey, this is a great hamburger you can get somewhere. You know, he wasn't doing that shit. He was going way deep into these other countries and showing you what it's like to live there, what it's like to visit there, what it's like to truly experience it. So I think, uh, you know, Anthony Bourdain's going to be very much missed on TV. He just showed us that the world is not a scary place and no other TV shows really do that. So that's, uh, we're going to miss that a lot when we think about Anthony Bourdain. And I hope somebody will come along and kind of pick that legacy up and and carry that mantle for him. But I think he was a one-of-a-kind kind of guy, and he was just such a natural television presence. He just knew how to do it. And it's such a shame that he was going through whatever he was going through behind the scenes um, that he didn't really get into too much. I mean, he talked a lot about his own drug use in the past, but he didn't talk a lot about mental health, really, that I can remember. He didn't talk about himself being depressed or anything, really, that I can remember. Uh, But clearly there was something amiss there. And uh, everyone missed it. And the guy was, you know, he was in France working on his show for CNN, the dream gig for most people, you know, and something inside him made him decide to take that ultimate exit. And it's 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 so sad. I mean, not for us as television viewers, as fans of his, as people who wanted to learn more about the places that he was teaching us about, but for his family, you know, for his friends. And the reactions to his death show you just how shocking this this really was. People did not see this one coming. So it's terrible. Uh, it, it's really terrible. I, I just think Anthony Bourdain, we need to remember him well. We need to thank him for showing Americans the world and showing Americans why we should step out into the world and and all of us combined listening to this show and myself included we'll never experience half the things that he experienced in his years on this earth but um man that's a it's just a that's a big loss for tv for sure anthony bourdain so i figured i better bring that up since this is a tv centric podcast and he just he did he has a great legacy for work on television no question about it way more than any other chef i can think of i mean he did so much more than just a food show so anthony bourdain gone way too soon we, we ask very simple questions what what makes you happy what do you eat what do you like to cook and everywhere in the world we go and ask these very simple questions uh we tend to get some really astonishing answers 
All right, now let's talk about somebody else who is gone from television, but who doesn't make me nearly as sad that they are gone. Roseanne Barr. So since the last time we spoke, you know, I had talked before about the Roseanne reboot and my disappointment with it in trying to completely change the narrative of what that show stood for. For so long, I've told you, friends, that Roseanne was one of my favorite shows of the 90s. It was, like, really one of the shows that made me love television. I spent some time in the hospital as a teenager, and Roseanne was on every night in reruns on TV Land. It was on like like four or five or something like that, or six. I think it was like six episodes in a row they'd show every night. They'd show them in chronological order, and I sat there and I watched it. I watched it every night, and I watched it that whole summer. And I just thought, this show is fantastic. The characters, so deep. The things they're standing for are in such stark contrast with where they're from and what you may think, you know, based on the fact that they're so blue-collar and, you know, what you connect with that. And it just the show stood for all the right things. And it was such a smart show, and it was so funny and well-written. And I, I talked before about the great writers who came through the writer's room. And, you know, how Roseanne, I mean, she was so sharp, such a feminist, such a... a, a such a progressive, you know, back in her day. And then some somewhere along the way, she became an asshole. As I think happens with some people as they get older, as they get more rich, they become assholes. And she definitely did become one. And, and she was always kind of an asshole. Even when she was standing for the right values, I think she was always an asshole. That was her character. But, you know, she became a legitimate asshole and not just one that, and and just not even a funny one at at some point. So I was already telling you that I was disappointed in the Roseanne reboot, and I didn't. I ended up not even finishing the season because I just couldn't watch what they were doing to the characters and kind of where this ham-fisted political humor was going. So anyway, Roseanne's been canceled. We all know that after she sent a couple tweets out that are just unbelievable. So horribly racist and trying to pass them off as jokes or I was on Ambien or whatever. Who gives a shit? You know, the fact that you would ever say anything like that, especially given the things you had said in the past, um, you know, just, just gets rid of any idea that, well, that may have been a joke because, you know, that's how she really thinks now. She's just this like crazy xenophobic racist lady who lives on a peanut farm in Hawaii somewhere. So anyway, on ABC canceling the show, I just want to say I read a report that said that ABC canceling Roseanne could end up costing the network $100 million short term. So $100 million, I don't care what network you are. I don't care that ABC is owned by Disney. $100 million is a lot of money to just say goodbye to immediately. But I read another report from the Wall Street Journal that said that Roseanne actually was not a huge moneymaker, believe it or not because the show cost a lot more money to produce than a typical new sitcom would. The production rights for the show, you know, because it was already kind of a proven hit back in the day, were about double the cost per episode than what they would be for any other new show debuting. And Roseanne Barr and John Goodman were making about a half million dollars combined per episode. So that, And that's just the two top actors. So the show was very expensive to produce. And the thing is... Roseanne was expected to make ABC about $58 million over the course of its next 13 episodes in the new season. But advertisers would have been pulling out left and right if they'd kept the show on. So they would have never made that $58 million. They would have had to have, you know, the, the, it would have had to have terminate, you know, agreements with advertisers. They would have had to have, you know, moved those ads to other shows and probably 
eaten some of the cost for that, and they would have been selling new ads on Roseanne for a much cheaper rate than they were able to charge before because it would have been so devalued. So ABC was going to lose money on this proposition either way. So the thing ABC loses, though, that really I think hurts them is several million viewers who were going to stick around and watch the other Tuesday night shows in its comedy lineup. So it's going to hurt the new show, The Kids Are All Right, which was scheduled to follow Roseanne in the fall. Um, but, you know, I can't imagine that the folks at Blackish are too upset to lose Roseanne as a lead in. And The Kids Are All Right, that's executive produced by Jimmy Kimmel. And we know how Jimmy Kimmel feels in terms of political views. Um, so I don't, I don't imagine he's too upset to lose Roseanne as a lead in either. And so many viewers these days are on demand that, you know, maybe it won't hurt him that much anyway in terms of viewership. I applaud ABC for for doing it so quickly, for just immediately kind of pulling the plug on this thing. But make no mistake, you know, this was a business decision as much as it was a social decision before you think of them as just being purely the good guys. You know, they were going to lose some serious money, and, and the show was so expensive to produce. And so there are a lot of things going on with the Roseanne cancellation. But, you know, I, I don't know. They've, they've talked about now bringing it back in some other way without Roseanne, but I don't. I feel like the ship has sailed, man. I mean, I'm not. What's the What's the point of the show, Roseanne, without without Roseanne Barr at the center of it? And you know, she's so far gone at this point that I, you know, you can't justify making a show with her now, anyway. So that's uh, that's basically my my uh, little treatise on the Roseanne cancellation at ABC. I think it'll end up, you know, it, it's end up being a great move for ABC. It makes them look good. It may make them look bad with a small number, very small but vocal number of viewers, but I think it makes them look good for a lot of other uh, TV creators, a lot of other people in the entertainment business. It showed balls, you know, to walk away from a huge hit in a day and age where hits do not come the way they used to. You know, there's not even a hit every year across all of television. So when you walk away from one these days, you know, it says a lot. And ABC walked away from a surefire hit right before the fall season was getting ready to crank up again. So I give them credit for that big time. Um, and I mentioned before that Andy's going to talk a little bit later on about a guy near and dear to both of us. I'm talking about Kanye West. And, you know, speaking of people who I admired for so long, I mean, Kanye West is like one of my all-time artistic musical heroes. And Andy's the same way. Andy and I, one of the things we bonded over when we first met, when we first met at Wright State years ago as teenagers, we bonded over the fact that we both were huge lovers of Huey Lewis and the News' sports album. We both had copies of it. He was the only other person I ever met our age that had a copy of sports in his car on CD. I had it too. So we bonded over that, and we bonded over the fact that we both loved Kanye West. We loved everything the guy had ever recorded, and we used to have these great conversations about his music. And that was what his music did, but you know, now things have taken a turn, and we're going to hear what Andy has to say about him coming up in just a little bit. So your childhood idol's dying, man, and uh, dying in terms of character. It Maybe it's better when your childhood idols do just die young because then they don't have the chance to become these embarrassing clowns as they get older, and then you don't have to defend being a fan of theirs. You know, no one's ever had to defend being a fan of Biggie Smalls because the guy only worked for a couple years, did amazing work, and then he died. You know, I mean, it's terrible that he was killed. I wish he was still alive because I'd like to hear what he was doing. But, you know, maybe he would have turned into some kind of asshole or something. Who knows? So, you know, Chris Farley, my hero when I was a child, died too young. But who knows? Maybe he would have turned into some big pro-Trump asshole. 
if he had continued on uh, living. So I don't know. Maybe it's better that the heroes that we have are preserved in our memories as the great heroes that they were. And they don't devolve into some kind of, I mean, just Roseanne and Kanye West, man. Two people I really admired creatively. And now I just, I'm not so sure. I don't know what's going on. All right. Uh, I got a message the other day. Um, from someone on Twitter just kind of asking what I've been watching. And I wanted to answer that on the show here. So I've been watching, I haven't been watching a whole lot of new TV right now. I think I mentioned last month that NYPD Blue is back streaming on Hulu. So I've been watching that again. And again, I just want to say, if you're a fan of like character-driven television, the golden age of TV, quote unquote, the shows like Mad Men, the shows like The Sopranos, the shows like The Wire, the shows that were so character driven and not action driven like the shows of today are, like The Walking Dead and like Westworld and so many others, you know, they're just about these massive set pieces. Shows that were set in the real world and followed real people and followed their character arcs over long terms. NYPD Blue might have been the first show of that TV golden air, golden age kind of thing. I mean, it predates The Sopranos and the way that it treats its characters is, you know, not quite on that same, you know, level, but still very good stuff. So, so many dynamic characters on that show. And that's why I love it. You know, it's not the police procedural where it's just about, well, who done it? The show is so much more than that. And that's why I think if you never watched Blue, for whatever reason, if you always thought it was kind of this basic cop show, you thought it was like Law and Order or something. No, it ain't Law and Order. It ain't fucking CSI. All right. This was TV for adults. And this was a cop show that was more of a drama, had almost more in line with soaps because it was so character driven and it had so much, you know, passionate sex and all kinds of great stuff going on on this show, especially in the early days. So check it out on Hulu, man. If for whatever reason you didn't watch Blue, I especially recommend watching about the first six seasons on on Hulu. And I think you'll love it, man. I think you'll fall in love. So I've been watching that again, going back through NYPD Blue. And uh, also lately have been watching Westworld again. Beth and I rewatched the whole first season. Now we're finally into the second season. I'm going to review Westworld uh, probably in next month's edition. I want to finish the second season first. But I will say that rewatching the first season, I reviewed it at length on a previous episode of the show. You can go back and check it out. Uh, it's in the title. Westworld is in the title of the episode. But I didn't love the first season. I didn't think it was as great as everybody was kind of saying it was. I didn't think any show from last year was that great, honestly, in the drama department. But I didn't think Westworld was really that great. So, But re-watching it, I thought it was better than I had remembered it being. So I, I think it was better the second time through knowing the things that you know because it's a show that is built on a lot of twists, but they're better when you kind of already know them i think that makes it even better when you go in with with you know eyes wide open so westworld right now that's all streaming on hbo now and as i said i'll uh, let you know what i think of season two coming up in uh, next month's episode but i've also been watching a lot of the wwe network lately my friend you know you gotta sometimes go back to your roots right the things that you loved in television when you were young and whether it's a kid's show or it's a sitcom like Full House or The Fresh Prince or, you know, Roseanne or whatever, you know, what, a show that you loved when you were first getting into TV, WWE, WWF as it was back then, was that for me also. When I was a kid, I was watching Raw every Monday night with my dad. It was this great bonding thing. My dad and my grandpa, we'd watch it together. And it was right at kind of the peak of when everybody was watching wrestling and they were doing all these dangerous things and you know, The Rock was on there and Stone Cold Steve Austin and Mick Foley and all these guys. 
uh, every week we're just doing crazy shit. And it was just so entertaining. And, you know, everybody likes to knock and dismiss professional wrestling, but it, you know, it has a, as good a legacy on American television as any form of entertainment does, you know, including sports, including news. Professional wrestling has been on television starting at the local level going back since, you know, the 1960s, maybe even into the 50s. I'm not sure, but it's been on forever. And Raw itself, WWE's Raw, has been on every Monday night without fail on American television since 1993. You know, I mean, what do you what more do you want? So great legacy. It may not always be the the most you know, the peak entertainment in terms of artistic credibility and, and academic credibility. But you know what? You're a snob if you think that, man. Sometimes it's just good to be entertained. And wrestling does that for you. So I've been watching a lot of WWE Network. There's so much stuff on there. Like, if you're into old wrestling at all, you can go back there and watch all these, like every old pay-per-view ever from WWE, WCW, ECW, all these other, you know, the territory days. There's all kinds of stuff to watch. And script, uh, you know, scripted shows, unscripted shows. Bunch of stuff on WWE Network, $10 a month. I recommend it if you're at all into wrestling, if you're at all into wrestling history, give it a subscription because I've been loving it, man. I've been watching it for a couple months now, and it's kept me busy pretty much every day and kept me entertained pretty much every day. It's made me laugh again, man. I've just been having fun watching it. So I've been watching a lot of that. I've been watching the NBA playoffs a lot lately. That's always fun to watch, except for when the Cavaliers get swept, but I'm not going to dwell on that. I'll tell you a couple things I haven't been watching. I haven't been watching, I will not be watching the NFL this year. I think I've decided. So I think it's going to be nice to have Sundays back completely for myself. You know, if if like me, you don't go to church, and if you're not into the NFL, Sundays are as great and free a day as you can as Saturdays are. And most people, their whole Sundays are already eaten up. But if you cut out stupid things like church and the NFL, you know what? You can have your Sundays all yourself, and you can do whatever you want. It's kind of a beautiful thing, my friend. You can sit around naked all day if you want to. Also, another thing I'm not watching is Arrested Development. That infamous New York Times interview took all the fun out of that show, so I do not think I'll be watching the new season of it. I wasn't terribly interested anyway to uh, catch back up with the gang. You know, I think that show kind of ran its course, and you know, I enjoyed it when it was on, and I own the DVDs just like everybody else does. But yeah, I don't think I'm going to be watching that new season. That that interview just kind of really took all the fun right out of that show and i don't know so there you go a couple things that i'm definitely definitely not watching all right i'm gonna pass things over to andy and then i'm gonna come back and talk about uh first off a couple comedy specials a couple stand-up comedy specials that i watched recently that uh i really think are worth your time and also i'm going to give you my review of deadpool 2 which is still in theaters right now but first off let me toss it over to my good friend, the one and only, Andy Sedlak. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ah, how are you? Hey, look, I've got to talk about Kanye West. I mean, some... Uh, some things can't be avoided. I'm Andy Sedlak, by the way, music editor at uh, the now defunct OverdueReview.com. Proud to be with you now on the Stream Police podcast. And I must, I know, it, it, it just, I can't put it off anymore. Got to talk about Kanye West. He has new music out. Kanye West has a new record. Have you heard it? Shit could get menacing, frightening. Fine. And I should note, before we uh, before we get into this, that Kanye West made a huge impact on me. He's up there with the Rolling Stones and Andy's personal Hall of Fame. But Kanye the man got tiresome. Kanye the man got in the way of Kanye the artist. And it takes a lot to do that. I haven't listened to a new record from him in a while. Let's see, the last one that I listened to when it came out was Jesus. That was, uh, what, 13? So, five, yeah, five years ago. Kanye's music was so, so good. It would take a lot for him to get in the way of the music itself. To get in the way of everything that I found so relatable and enticing. Except he did. He did get in the way of it. Trump is a human being also. And he's in a very powerful position. And he's doing a lot of things to actually help business owners be able to go past all these fake laws and rules and things. I mean, Candace can give you the facts better better than that, but uh, uh, I, I believe that Kim Jong-un didn't believe that Obama was crazy enough to come at him. You know, sometimes you need some crazy motherfuckers to change something. Steve Jobs is crazy. Now we all on Steve Jobs' phones. They say Trump's crazy. They say I'm crazy. But I'm here to show love. Well, the new record is called Yay. The day I downloaded it, I listened to it three times in a row. Now, part of that reason is because it's only seven songs, and they're not long songs. The longest is, see, I looked this up, four minutes and 34 seconds. It's not long. The shortest song is barely two minutes. So you're looking at a 24-minute runtime here. Let's cut to the chase. Did I like it? Did I like it? Well, I like Huey Lewis's sports. That's a likable record. I wouldn't call this likable. Do I approve of the effort? Yes, I do. Does it give you something to think about when it's over? Yes, it does. Let's put it another way. You can download it for seven or eight bucks. Is it worth seven or eight bucks? I believe it is. 
There's a lot to chew on here. Tweaking, tweaking off that 2CB high. Is he going to make it TBD high? And I will note that he gets a little help. Ty Dolla Sign is on the record. Kid Cudi, Nicki Minaj. But nobody really makes much of an impact. This is Kanye's show. And nothing hurts anymore. I feel kind of free. the kids we used to be. Make no mistake about it. Again, Yay is the name of the record. You'll hear him make references to the Me Too movement, to Russell Simmons, uh, Wiz Khalifa, Tristan Thompson, his statement to to, uh, TMZ that slavery was a choice. He does not drop Trump's name. Doesn't mention the Donald. All these references aside, look, I, I don't listen to a Kanye West album to hear his take on current events. I, I listen to hear him ruminate, to tear himself down and then build himself up twice as high. The issue with every Kanye West album, and it's only become more so as the years have gone by, is that you have to decipher what's from the heart and what he's saying to make headlines. What he's saying to drum up a little controversy because he likes doing that. He knows how to push buttons. So he'll insert little statements into his rhymes that'll stir the pot. Think about that Taylor Swift line. I made that bitch famous. In truth, the lines that he drops in just to stir the pot are mostly throwaways. They're outrageous, but not terribly interesting. And they distract from some of the more honest things he says. Is Ye an honest record? I believe it is. And that's good news. It is honest. It's got that warts and all honesty. But remember, it's honesty through the lens of Kanye. So... You may say, Andy, well, we're, we're splitting hairs here. No, no, I just want to make sure we're understood. Adjust your expectation for what you consider honest. Straight up, the best song on the record is called Ghost Town. And nothing hurts anymore. I feel kind of free. still the kids we used to be. I'm not sure if it sounds like a radio song, but, but it's, a, it's a great song. Nevertheless, the weakest song is called All Mine. It's about uh, the closest he comes to uh, embracing trap music, which is all the rage right now. Ye isn't as uh, musically adventurous as albums like Twisted Fantasy, um, but he's totally unfiltered lyrically. The record actually starts with like this free form spoken word poetry. Uh, it's, it's more spoken word than, than like a rap. Uh, the last song is maybe the most adult rap songs I've ever heard. One of the most adult rap songs I've ever heard. Be ready for contradictions. 
when you listen to Ye. He wraps a thank you to Kim Kardashian for sticking by him, and it's not as gag-worthy as it sounds. But then he turns right around on the very next track and raps to somebody from his, his past that he's still in love with. These are the conflicting threads that bind Ye, the album, together. Are they in contrast with one another? Yes, of course they are. A lot of people would say that he's talking out of both sides of his mouth or that he's being hypocritical. But keep in mind, people do that. And Kanye's no different than anyone else, no matter what Kanye wants to believe. For instance, he says Russell Simmons got me too'd. He got me too'd. Like somebody was putting something on him or framing him or throwing shade. He got me too'd. As if that's all the Me Too movement is about. And a lot of people are going to hear that and say, uh, dude, he was accused of rape. Like, take that shit seriously. 20 minutes later, then, he's rapping about his daughters, how he doesn't want them to be taken advantage of one day. Both of those things make sense in Kanye's brain. He doesn't see that as hypocritical. Now, all of these complexities are tied together by West's mental health. There's been a lot of talk about that lately. And he talks about it pretty freely on the record. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder when he was 39. But note that this isn't like a, a somber record. Not somber at all. It's more like a, like a freewheeling circus. And then I started getting all this energy. And, you know, some would say it's negative, positive. I don't believe in negative, positive. I just believe in energy. And that, that started coming. I was like, I know what to do with this. Mm-hmm. I'm taking all that in. Give me, give me everything you got. I want all the smoke. I want whatever you got. Give it, bring it, you know? Because I know what to do with the energy. My dad talked about a power versus force. It's almost like Tai Chi. You can like, take that. Diagnosed with bipolar disorder at 39 years old, he raps about it over and over again. He alludes to suicide. He alludes to the disorder getting, uh, getting ahead of him, impacting his career, impacting his marriage, impacting his wallet. And then he also attributes his creativity to it. And in a song like the first song on the record, I Thought About Killing You, he makes it clear through sheer repetition that he's going to give you the full picture of the condition, the the warts in all honesty. Seven songs, 24 minutes. Yay is the name of the record from Kanye West. The themes are in its bookends, the first track and the last track. The first one, I Thought About Killing You, he lays out his condition. He repeats those same lines over and over with varying degrees of intensity. If you're listening, you have no choice but to commit it to memory. The last track I mentioned is about being a father. It's called Violent Crimes. It's a special song. It's no secret that that hip-hop has struggled with middle age. (laughs) Rap was built on on, uh, boastfulness and uh, wordplay and one-upsmanship. And there's not much about growing older that you can boast about. <laughs> well, there is, but, but, but you may have to think harder about it. Violent Crimes is the type of song that comes after some pretty intense thought. It is a song that Kanye West couldn't have written in 2004 or 2008 or 10 or 13. It's a song that he could only write now. Same with I Thought About Killing You. Or Ghost Town. 
I put a song called Wouldn't Leave in that category as well. That's the one about Kim. So the good news is the majority of the album finds Kanye West ruminating on topics that he couldn't have before. But again, he's a headline guy. And he will clutter up his rhymes with unnecessary and really kind of trite lines. You have to take the good with the bad. And if you're willing to, you'll get something out of this record. I know you will. I believe yay is the most commonly used word in the Bible. And in the Bible, it means you. So it's, I'm you. I'm us. It's us. It went from being Kanye, which means the only one, to just yay, just being a reflection of our good, our bad, our confused, everything. That I'm just more of a a reflection of who we are. This is beings. I do want to say that this is still Kendrick Lamar's moment. (laughs) You know, I hate to, I I just, I even hesitate to do this. I hate to compare artists, especially like legendary artists, great artists. I mean, where does that get you? But I feel like this should be said. Let's not lose track of the moment. And and let me tell you why that's important. It's because this, this, in 2018, this is the time that Kendrick Lamar is coming into his own on that grand scale. Damn was, was, the record was a masterpiece. The dude's talent is blooming. And like everybody, far and wide, big and small, are noticing. It's being noticed in a really big way right now. And virtually no matter whose career you're talking about, this is the point in an artist's career that everybody remembers. It's that point where they first bloom in a really big, significant, mainstream way. Everybody remembers Bob Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone and Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run before they remember other things. That's not to say that these these guys uh, never put it all together again. They, They definitely did. But everybody remembers the first time they put it all together. Kanye West is now where Eminem was when he broke out. Eminem was still great, but he'd already had that big moment by the time Kanye arrived. And Kanye is great. But he had his big moment as Kendrick arrived. 2018 will no doubt belong to Kendrick Lamar. It's just a footnote. The point is that somehow Kanye West is still vital in spite of himself. It's a big statement because it's not something that everybody can pull off. You're probably thinking of someone right now who couldn't bridge the gap between their their personal life and their creativity. Unfortunately, there are many, many examples. All right, friends, you know we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find this playlist on Spotify. I think you'll enjoy uh, everything that's on there. Every tune is from my personal collection. Every month, I add five more songs to it. Can you hear the dog, by the way? Every time I come down here to talk to you, that motherfucker starts barking every, every time. Do you hear him? Anyway, this playlist. <laughs> always fresh, folks. Always fresh. For the first song, I'm going to look to, uh, let's see, Bon Jovi, who, no, I, I don't really like, but this song cuts a little deeper than She's a Little Runaway. This is called 
these days. All right, second song, ACDC, Can't Stop Rock and Roll. Next, from the great and often R-rated Kinky Friedman, the song is called Freedom to Stay. Walking down Division Street, I happened on to meet a stranger with a package in his hand. He said, Mr. If you follow me, rainbow colors you will see. I'll take your head into the promised land. Friend, I don't need your stuff. My Jesus is enough. You see them colors bright. Why can't you see the light? Let's get high on Jesus. And I've got one by Glenn Fry, a little number called Sexy Girl. Finally, one of my favorites. This is special. From Mr. Bruce Springsteen, it's Incident on 57th Street.
All right, that's it. If you listen to Kanye's new record, why don't you let me know what you think of it? Shoot me an email at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. S-E-D-L-A-K, the word journal, all squished together at gmail.com. I'll read, uh, I'll read your comments on the, uh, on the show next week if you want me to. All right. Don't forget to uh, give us a review on iTunes. Rate us five stars. Spread the word. Maybe one day we'll make a nickel off of this thing. Don't hold your breath, huh? <laughs> Back to Clint. See ya. All right. Uh, I told you before that uh, a couple stand-up comedy specials that I recently watched, I wanted to recommend to you. And uh, let me just give you the rundown on these real quick. I love, always have loved stand-up comedy. I think it's one of the great you know, art forms. And, you know, when somebody does it right, there's hardly anything better than watching a stand up, just go up there and dominate for an hour in front of an audience and, and crack you up, even though you're at home and it shouldn't, you know, be as entertaining as it is just watching a person talking on a stage, maybe walking around back and forth about five feet each way. That shouldn't be that entertaining, but man, it is when somebody does it right, there's nothing better than that. So first off on Netflix, I finally, I know I'm way late to this, but I watched Ali Wong's Baby Cobra from 2016. I finally got around to it because I had seen some of the hype for her new one, Hard Knock Wife, and I haven't watched it yet. But Baby Cobra, I was like, I'm going to start there and I'm going to watch that because everybody seemed to love that special. And if you missed Baby Cobra, I got to tell you, man, it that is the rawest stand-up special that I have seen in years I was just blown away by how truly raw this special is. And first off, if you don't know anything about Ali Wong, uh, she works as a writer on uh, Fresh Off the Boat on ABC. And her look, to look at her, she is this very Asian-looking woman who is also, when she recorded her her two stand-up specials, a very pregnant woman as well. So it's just this great jarring juxtaposition that gives the jokes even more impact to see this woman in the shape she's in and with the look she has saying the shit that she's saying because i mean she's saying stuff that would have made eddie murphy blush back in the 1980s a lot of women get really you know freaked out about anal and they're like oh i don't want to do that i'm scared of the pain you ain't scared of the pain women they wax their eyebrows they do all sorts of crazy shit you're not scared of the pain what you're really scared of is doo-doo on the dick. <laughs> you're scared that he's going to see that, and that's going to be all of your shame, your inner evil, all your secrets and lies. Sephora can't help you now. <laughs> but don't worry, because when he puts it in the butt, all he's thinking about is, I just put it in her butt. <laughs> I got to call my mom, my dad, Dave, my grandma. The only stand-up special that I can think of 
that has so much raw sexual content and over-the-top physical stuff would be Robin Williams Live on Broadway, which is pretty old at this point. But if you remember that one, that's one of my all-time favorite stand-up specials. Williams was just going nuts, man. And he's so sweaty, just like a mess by the end of that thing. And the stuff he's talking about, you know, it's just so raw, so edgy. And, uh, he, he's, you know, he's so over-the-top with his manic energy that uh, that's the only one that I can really compare to Ali Wong's Baby Cobra. So she's, I mean, she's so bold, man. And and doing that again at seven months pregnant, I mean, she's way more raw when she's talking about sex than Amy Schumer ever was. Like, I'm I'm only 33, and my pussy is not as wet as it used to be. (laughs) It's very demoralizing, okay? Do you remember when you were 18 years old and your pussy was just sopping wet all the time? All the time you just took it for granted that you could just reach your hand down your pants at any given moment. You'd throw up the peace sign afterwards and there would be that snail trail in between your fingers. Oh my God, it was so juicy. You could just blow a bubble wand with it. Just, oh, I slime you, I slime you, Ghostbusters. know what kind of mother I'm gonna be. So I just was blown away by that and, and a lot of her almost all of Ali Wong's comedy in her in that special Baby Cobra comes from personal stuff. So it's almost all talking about her own life, talking about her own sex life, talking about her marriage, talking about the fact that she's about to become a mother for the first time. So it's a very introspective personal kind of thing and it's like a barrier soul kind of special but she just her energy is so off the charts man that's what makes it so great is the level of energy that this woman has so that kind of contrasts that style the the introspective personal just talking about your own self a lot clashes a little bit with the other special that i just watched recently that i also thought was fantastic and that was michelle wolf's nice lady which is now on HBO now if you want to watch it. That was from 2017. And I recently I watched Michelle Wolf Nice Lady because well a friend of mine, the great Kelly who is a listener of this show, uh recommended that I watch it and she gave me her HBO now password. So I was like, "You know what? I got to as a favor to Kelly, I'm going to watch this." And I don't always watch a lot of recommendations, but I love stand up anyway and and Kelly's a stand up, so I thought, you know, she knows what she's talking about, and especially after seeing Michelle Wolf at the correspondence dinner being introduced to her that way, I was like really intrigued to watch her do stand-up for an hour. And I'm so glad I did. Her set was so much more topical. You know, in comparing it to Ali Wong, it was much more topical, it was more broad and current, less about her own personal life. It was more about things that women in general face. And, you know, if you like observational stuff and you like stuff that's a little bit more philosophical, like if you like the Seinfeld, Bill Hicks kind of comedians, the the George Carlin kind of comedians, I think you'll like Michelle Wolf's special even better than you would like Ali Wong's special. Now, if you were more of the Robin Williams, Amy Schumer, um, Eddie Murphy style, I think Ali Wong definitely would be up your alley. I like them all. You know, I like all those comics I just listed, so I'm a fan of of all of them. But you should definitely check out Nice Lady if if the observational stuff is your kind of thing the stuff that she did about women's bathrooms was just fantastic and i don't know why men are so concerned about our bathrooms i worry about your bathrooms you don't lock yourselves in a stall you just stand up against a wall and watch each other pee 
You have your pants undone while you're looking at a wall. You're just ripe for the raping. And you designed both bathrooms. You gave yourselves a shittier bathroom. Give yourselves enough stalls. Sit while you pee. Rest those legs. You gotta be tired from stomping on us all day. And she also talks a lot about modern dating, and that stuff feels very authentic. It feels like she's really gone through it. Wolf also does that thing that some stand-ups do perfectly, which is laughing at her own jokes. You know, Eddie Murphy, he used to be like the king of doing that. He'd laugh at his own jokes, and it somehow made you laugh even more. If some people did it, it would make them seem like they were an asshole or something. But, you know, it, it, it works when some comics do it, and it works when Wolf does it. Now, if you turn your attention back to this PowerPoint... <laughs> And that's, again, in direct contrast to Ali Wong, who kept a pretty much straight face the whole time she was doing her special. She was letting the audience crack up, but she wasn't laughing herself at her own jokes. It was like the stuff she was talking about was life and death. But my favorite part of Michelle Wolf's whole set was the way she addressed the elephant in the room, which, if you've heard any of her jokes, what's the first thing you notice about her jokes? It's her voice, right? You listen to her voice and you go, man, that's kind of an annoying voice. Well, she talks about that at length in the special. And I get it. I get not liking Hillary. But the one thing that I think is completely unforgivable is some people would be like, well, you know what it is? I just can't listen to her. She has such a shrill voice. And it's like, well, sometimes. (laughs) That's just what happens to your voice. Sometimes you're a person with a shrill voice and there's nothing you can do And if she doesn't do that, you know, it could have been one of these uncomfortable things where people online are picking on her for it and whatever, and people are being dicks about just the sound of her voice, you know, something that you can't control. But she does it herself. Talk about turning the lens on yourself in this great way, and that's something that comics have to learn to do, you know. I mean, that's if you're going to be a great comic, you got to be able to turn the lens on yourself, not just on society. And I think Wolf did that perfectly in that part of the set, and that was where I was laughing the hardest was, you know, hearing her talk about that. I got to tell you, it's exciting, you know, when you see great stand-up specials and when you see new comedy stars being introduced. And I think Ali Wong and Michelle Wolf are both going to be people that we're going to hear a lot about in future years. I don't know if we're going to see them being in a lot of movies. I don't know if that's their ambition, but I certainly think we're going to see them doing a lot more stand-up work as things go on. I love how different these sets were in terms of the content and the personal styles, yet both of them showed strong women who were totally in control of the stage and totally in control of the audience for an entire hour. So Baby Cobra and Nice Lady, they're both specials done by these strong women who are both very funny in different ways, but their styles are so different from each other. It shows that there's not just one way to be a feminist comic, which I think some people think there is only one way. There's only one kind of joke you can do. There's only one kind of way you can look to be a feminist comic. And both of these comics throw that notion you know, completely out the window, where Michelle Wolf's jokes definitely sound more like what you'd expect from a feminist comic working today, where she picks apart some of the ways that men have dominated women in society and, and things like that. Wolf does a lot of that in her set. But it's a good time to be a woman. We're on our way up. It's exciting for us. But men, you're done. It's over. There's nothing new for you to do. You've been to the moon. You've been all the presidents. 
Even if you were like, I'm going to win an Olympic medal and then turn into a lady, you'd be the second. Wong's stuff almost comes off as anti-feminist at times. She talks a lot about wanting to be a homemaker and resenting some of the women who've ushered in the movement for equality over the years. She talks a lot about her Harvard business-educated husband and how she wanted him to just kind of carry her through life so she could just be you know, lazy, sit at home, watch reality television. But then after you've heard all this stuff for about 50 minutes, she has this great reveal at the end of her special showing that despite her husband's accolades and despite the fact that he's got this you know, great degree that anybody would kill for, she's the, actually the breadwinner of the family. And recently we bought our first home together. And uh, two weeks into the escrow process, I discovered that my beautiful Harvard-educated husband was $70,000 in debt. (laughs) And me, with my hard-earned TV money, paid it all off. So as it turns out, he's the one who trapped me. And now, if I don't work, we die. Why else do you think I'm performing seven and a half months pregnant? So it's just this great swerve where you're thinking, man, I don't know, maybe Ali Wong's not a feminist. Maybe she's kind of an old-fashioned, I don't know, like uh, anti-feminist. But at the end, she reveals that she's not at all. You know, she's just her own kind of feminist. And the stuff she says, you know, I think a lot of women have probably thought that stuff over the years as well for as as great as it is you know to have the independence obviously and no one would not would argue against independence and equality you know sometimes there's got to be a part of you i think in the back of your mind that goes you know it would be kind of great to just stay at home today and just you know not have to make any decisions and just be totally dependent on someone else i think we've all felt that way male or female and this the way that wong kind of puts that on his head was was brilliant so i love them both totally different kinds of specials totally different kinds of flavor totally different kinds of comics but ali wong baby cobra right now on netflix and michelle wolf's nice lady is right now on hbo now so give them both a watch if you're a lover of uh, of stand-up you will you will not be disappointed at all and finally before i send you out the door today i wanted to give you my review of Deadpool 2, which is still in theaters right now. You know, Marvel just continues its dominance of the, you know, pop culture conversation. And while this is not one made under the Disney-owned Marvel Cinematic Universe umbrella, Deadpool certainly has been a, a superhero that a lot of people have talked about in the last few years since the first film came out. And it was kind of a groundbreaking experimental movie. And Deadpool 2 picks that up, you know, kind of right where it left off. If you're a fan of that self-referential meta stuff then there's no reason why you wouldn't love deadpool 2 but i gotta i gotta say man the movie exhausted me and i'm not gonna like give spoilers or anything in this review but did you think that deadpool 2 was a little bit exhausting was it too self-referential was it too meta i mean when you break the fourth wall so completely that the rest of the house falls down i think it's hard to get the audience to feel anything for the characters right When a certain character was dying at the end of the movie, I honestly did not feel anything resembling emotion. I was just waiting for, like, the next gag to happen, which inevitably it did. So, 
I think that was kind of a, a flaw of this movie for what made the first one so great, which was we've never seen a movie that was this self-referential. I think it kind of hurt the second one because it was almost just like too much. Like everything was cranked up even more than it was in the first one. And it just became too much. It was exhausting. But I will say I liked Deadpool 2. I did think it was funny. I did laugh a lot out loud in the, in the theater. And I heard a lot of other people laughing. I thought the violence, the way they did it was, you know, it was well done. It looked good. Um, CGI mostly looked good. I, I wasn't nuts about a couple th- the ju- juggernaut I thought kind of looked a little bit cheesy but everything else I think looked really uh looked really good and you know Ryan Reynolds is, is just this is the role that he's going to be remembered for for the rest of his life so like it or not and I think it's good because I didn't have much of a cinematic memory of him before he stepped into the the shoes of Deadpool so I think this being his legacy this is a this is a legacy that a lot of actors would love to have but the thing with Deadpool 2 is this is like an insider fan newsletter in movie form. You know, I mean, this movie is just constant winking at the audience, at the smart audience members who are up on everything, who know everything. That's who this movie really appeals to the most. The people who will get all the jokes and appreciate all the jabs at the superhero movie art form are people who already recognize all these tropes that he's making fun of. So, I mean... I think it's this is a hard movie for casual fans to really dig too much. So if you're just kind of a casual like superhero, you you just okay on superhero movies, you just take them or leave them, or you're just okay on comics or whatever, or you don't really know much about Deadpool. I can't recommend this movie for you because I think it's just made for like the diehards. I think it's hard to say that this would be for a casual audience because it's just too damn self-referential it's exhausting man i need to wa- needed to watch this movie with subtitles on because i think i missed so many jokes because the jokes are just coming rapid fire it's like watching angie tribeca but for two hours you know i mean it's just non-stop joke after joke after joke and for anybody one wanting like deadpool to pop into the marvel cinematic universe i think you can kiss that goodbye because there is no way in hell that deadpool in the way that he's presented in these movies can exist alongside the Marvel Cinematic Universe characters or even the X-Men characters because he would just undermine them so completely and constantly acknowledging that it's a movie and that it's not real, it would just remove all meaning from those much more serious films. I mean, him being in the MCU would, like, ruin the entire MCU, would make the whole thing just seem stupid, which is not what the MCU is about. You know, the MCU is kind of serious. And the X-Men movies are, like, very serious. So Deadpool just wouldn't work. So anybody clamoring like, oh, I want to see Deadpool in the Avengers. No, you trust me, you don't. Because it wouldn't work. Disney's not going to do an R-rated Avengers movie, first off. And second off, you don't want to see him making fun of everybody. It's not That's not why we go to watch you know, the Captain America movies or the Iron Man movies or the or Black Panther. You know, Black Panther wasn't great because it was silly. Black Panther was great because it was fucking serious, man. That's what made that movie so cool. So you don't want to see Deadpool in the Avengers, and I don't think you ever will unless, you know, Marvel goes out of its mind. Keep them separated, as The Offspring once said. The style of these Deadpool movies is just so unlike anything that we've seen that it cannot possibly coexist with other franchises without totally making one of them look stupid. Like, it's either going to make Deadpool look stupid or it's going to make the MCU look stupid. So just keep them apart, please. The movie that, honestly, this might surprise you, but the movie that I'd most compare the Deadpool franchise to is Airplane. 
even more so than like the scary movie franchise was like Airplane. I think the Deadpool movies are really a lot like the Airplane movies um, and the Naked Gun movies because they point out all these things that made action movies. Like Airplane was so cool because it came out when all these disaster movies were really big back then. And it just showed you how stupid those movies were most of the time. And that was, I think, what for audiences back then, they thought Airplane was so so revolutionary because it was like, oh my God, this stuff is dumb. Now you watch Airplane and it's just funny on its own terms because it is so well-written, well-acted. It's just all very well done and it's, it still holds up to this day, even if you've never seen a disaster movie, even if you've never seen one of those airport show or movies or whatever, or Towering Inferno or any of that crap. If you've never seen that, it doesn't matter. Airplane's just funny on its own. And I think the Deadpool movies... Do what do to superhero movies what Airplane did to the disaster movies in its day, or what the Naked Gun did to police action movies in its day. So that's what I'd compare Deadpool to. If you're a fan of Airplane, if you're a fan of Naked Gun, watch Deadpool. Much more raw, you know, it's R-rated, hard R, but uh, I think you'll like it if you like that style. If you like that non-stop breakneck speed humor, you'll dig Deadpool too. But yeah, I just, I can't really recommend it for anyone who's not into that. I think it'll be, it's just too exhausting. You won't know what the hell's going on. You won't know what they're talking about half the time. You know, I didn't get some of this stuff and I'm kind of a nerd on this stuff too. But so I don't know. I I wasn't, I didn't like it as much as the first Deadpool. And I didn't think the first Deadpool was one of the great movies of all time or anything, but I thought it was better. Um, But you know, it was fine. It was a fine movie. I think it was certainly better than it was certainly better than like the Justice League or any of the other crap that DC's putting out. So I'll take Deadpool 2 over that. But if you want to laugh, if you want a bunch of laughs, then and if you're feeling kind of nihilistic, then go check out Deadpool 2. You will dig it if you're in that mood. Stay back or Justin Bieber dies. <laughs> Justin Bieber. He called you Justin Bieber. <laughs> oh, oh, wait, wait, wait. Okay, let's, let's not do whatever that is. Okay, let's just talk. It's, it's Russell, right? Fire fist. Fire fist. Ooh, that's a great name. Where does it burn? Just the fist or all the way up to the elbow? Oh, oh, definitely all the way up to the elbow. Come quietly, or there will be trouble. You stole that from Robocop. Robocop. Just stand down. You're embarrassing me. Look. Fire fist. Fire fist. Oh, my God. I can't say it. I'm so <laughs> All right, last thing here, my friend, as always, helping you build a better Netflix and Amazon Q. I want to recommend you a movie streaming on both of those services right now. First off, on Netflix from 2017, one of my favorite movies of the year. It's Coco from Pixar. Uh, I immediately, when Coco came out, I, I thought that uh, I said that I thought it was up there with Pixar's best films. I mean, I put it up there with Wall-E. I put it up there with Toy Story, with the whole Toy Story trilogy. I put it up there with any of the best Pixar movies, which, as you know, are among some of the best movies ever made. So Coco was just a beautiful film. I think it was kind of a return to form uh, for Pixar, which is, would had kind of been a little bit disappointing in the last few years. But Coco, very, a very good movie, beautiful movie, made everyone cry in theaters when they when I was there seeing it first time. And I've watched it again since then, and it's still great. The music's awesome. The fact that almost every actor in the entire cast is Latino is is fantastic because that would not have been the case, you know, 10 years ago. They would have had a bunch of white people doing Latino voices, but, you know, they went authentic with this movie. And it's just a gorgeous film in every way you can take that word. So check out Coco right now on Netflix. I don't care your age. Give it a watch. You'll love it. 
And on Amazon right now, another one of my favorite movies from 2017, Lady Bird, is streaming on Amazon Prime. So if you missed Lady Bird, if you want to watch a movie again that has a couple moments that will make you cry but also will make you laugh and make you feel, you know, remind you of a time when you were younger and the things you went through as a teenager that made you laugh and made you sad and made you who you are today, give Lady Bird a watch. It's one of the great coming-of-age movies that I've seen in a long time. And Saoirse Ronan... It's just a matter of time before she wins that Oscar. She's great in it. Greta Gerwig did amazing work on this movie. I can't wait to see what she does next. And I just I can't say enough good things about Lady Bird. It it had like my favorite scene in all of movies from last year. The scene when um, Beanie Feldstein and uh, Saoirse Ronan are sitting in the car crying while they listen to Dave Matthews. I think that was the best scene in any movie that I saw all of last year. So check out Lady Bird right now on Amazon Prime. Uh, and also, I'll give you a bonus one. Space Jam is also on Amazon Prime, so you can thank me later after you watch that uh, cinematic gem. That is on Amazon as well. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in, my friend. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. You can email me as well at theclintdavis at gmail.com. Thanks to you very much for listening, my friend. And thank you very much to Andy Sedlak, our music editor out there in Dayton, Ohio, sitting in his basement, drinking a gin and tonic somewhere. I'm going to enjoy my stogie, and I'm going to head out the door, and I'll talk to you next time. Until then, stream on, my friend. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.